Surprise. I don't. So, uh, Pastor Calvin is today, um, he's going to be going, undergoing a medical checkup and a procedure. It's, a, it's, a, it's more of a check uh, tomorrow, but he has to start preparing for it today. So, um, I'm standing in. <laughs> so, he told me about this on Wednesday night, and uh, I thought, well, I've never done this before. So, here I am. But, you know, there's been something that's actually been on my heart for a while that I've wanted to be able to share with you all. So, as I'm, this is my first time doing this, and I was asking around, I was asking, like, Mike, hey, Mike, how long does this take? And he told me, oh, you know, I had, like, a month to do it, and I, you know, I'm <laughs> getting ready and preparing and things like that, and I'm thinking, oh, man, okay, I have, like, a, a day and a half. So uh, let, me, let, me see, let me see what I, what I can speak out of, of my heart, and that's what Pastor, uh, Pastor really um, encouraged me to do. Do something that I'm familiar with, do something that has been, that's been kind of been a focus of a part of my life, because I know that already, you know, I'm not going to be giving you today uh, like an exegesis on a, on a particular scripture passage or anything like that. What I offer today is more of a devotional, something that's been impacting me greatly in the fa past few years as I've been walking with Jesus. Uh, it's much less expository uh, scripture, and it's more out of pers my personal experience in line with uh, spiritual and scriptural truth. So it's also heavily based off of um, a small group study that group study that my small group did. Those of us who those of us who've been uh, walking with Jesus for a long time, uh, looking for that you know that next push, that next step to go further in your spiritual walk. I highly recommend the book. I think that there's a lot of meat to chew on there. Every chapter, every page is kind of like I got to sit there and think about it. So my hope today is that uh, you walk away and you go away here with something, some new discovery, some new idea, something that might spark some new thought or you know, new spiritual growth in you and in, in your walk. It's be able to help you see your walk with Jesus in a little different way. <clears throat> All right, so if you know me, you know that I love sci-fi. I love particularly, I particularly love hard sci-fi. So no magical inertial dampeners to explain why people who are flying around space, you know, in high speeds and making all these crazy turns and they're not being tossed around and being flattened and splattered on walls and blacking out at every turn. You know, that's, that's, not, real, that's not realistic. You know, Star Wars is, doesn't fall into this category. I like it too, but Star Wars is more like fantasy in space. You know, you're talking about like replace Gandalf and dwarves and elves with, you know, Jedis and Ewoks. You know, instead of magic, you get the force and that kind of thing. And, and not really like Star Trek either. Uh, Star Trek is a little bit too far out there. You know, teleporters and warp drives, it's kind of breaking a lot of laws of physics. Um, I love the idea of far-flung places in space. You know, technology that seems advanced, but not so advanced that it's outside of our imagination and not out of reach. Uh, and certainly plausible. The stories and the things that people, you know, would have in those places. So, you know, settings like this, this kind of sci-fi allow us to ask questions about ourselves, our society, our ethics, our morals, things that we normally can't do with real people, you know, with real examples, real cultures, real families, because it's too close. It, you're, you're, making, you're starting to make commentary about actual life. For example, I'm, I'm reading a, a sci-fi series right now that talks about advanced androids, sentient intelligence, pe you know, intelligence that people, that we humans make and what happens when that sentient intelligence goes beyond their original intended, in original intended function? So it, there, a main character in this story is an android who was designed by a government who is advanced in thinking and encouraged 
the development of uh, artificial intelligence and robotics and uh, human augmentation, bio, you know, biological modification. Uh, and this, this robot that they created was created as a soldier to fight for that, for their government. But the soldier decided all of a sudden that they wanted to go a different direction. They didn't believe in their original function anymore. They didn't believe in the original government, in fact, and defected to an opposing government who actually discouraged the development of artificial intelligence, did not want to see people modified because they saw it as an affront to human life, but at the same time was um, encouraged and uh, upheld the rights of all sentient beings. So this robot shows up, has their own thoughts, has its own sentient thoughts, and wants to do its own thing, and that government takes them in. So in the story, you know, this is all about the heart of that, of that particular intelligence and that, that, uh, that, uh, that robot, that sentient being, and to see where that spirit, where that heart that was developing in them would take them and what kind of decisions that it would make, it being a created thing by, you know, by people. But that heart and what drove that, uh, that, uh, that robot's decision is the same sort, of thing that, same sort of thing that we face as well. We in our hearts, we in our inner spirits, that is what drives our decisions. Proverbs 4.23 tells us, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So our interior life is what drives our actions, our thoughts. It's, it's not physical. The things that are outside of us don't drive our life. The things that have formed us, that shaped us, how we think, how we feel, our spirit, our, our heart, and that is what drives our direction. We don't, need to see, we don't need to look very far to see the results, right? In, in our world, we see murders, we see crime, famine, disasters, people living uh, in poverty, and people live, people live in the way that they were formed. And they live from that without really understanding, you know? How, how many people really sit down and think about, like, why did I do that thing? What drove my intent? Yet many of those same people would claim to be good people. Their head may be filled with all sorts of truisms and, and moral platitudes. And in fact, it's the goal of every nation, of every school, of every place, to every family to produce citizens at the bare minimum, able to cope with life on earth in a non-destructive manner, at minimum. But these words, these things that, that people learn, they, they don't match their actions. So when Jesus called his disciples together and sent them out to make disciples of all nations, he was sending out unique revolutionaries because he knew that this wouldn't be about toppling kingdoms and nations as we know it on this earth. Jesus sent out revolutionaries with marching orders to form, he did not send out uh, revolutionaries with mar marching orders to form new governments or new systems, new moralities, new codes of ethics, nothing that could be found on written paper, nothing that could be found on the, you know, on the, on the halls or buildings or governments, <clears throat> no social institutions, no laws, nothing external that could be shown for that. This was a revolution of character. This was the toppling of kingdom, kingships in people's hearts, an inner revolution. So it's from individual, passed from individual to individual. And his goal was to bring people's hearts under his direction, his wisdom, his goodness, his power as part of God's eternal kingdom for this world. His revolution would just be an, a continual, ongoing world revolution, one that's still going on today, and one that will keep going until God's satisfied. So this revolution 
is supposed to penetrate superficial things, like outward behaviors and actions. It's supposed to go all the way into their depths of their soul, changing ideas, changing beliefs, feelings and habits, tendencies and relationships. <clears throat> so back to our Proverbs verse. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. A heart that is untransformed cannot flow the life of Jesus. And conversely, a transformed heart, like Christ's, will not cooperate with the world's corrupt streams of unrighteousness. It would rather die that rather, that, uh, rather, sorry, it would rather die while it resisted unrighteousness. And I, I think of Nolan, we, we, we emailed out a prayer request for him recently. He stood up in his workplace because he saw something that was not right. He was asked to be doing something not right. I hope he doesn't hate me for saying this, but I think that, you know, that, that was a clear example of an area of a heart that was transformed that would not stand for unrighteousness. So he would rather leave, exit out of that situation rather than go along with it. He could not, I don't think he could have lived with himself to do that. I don't think his, that area and that, that heart that was transformed in that area would be able to live with that decision. So what do I mean when I talk about a transformed heart? This idea of spiritual transformation. Okay, so spiritual transformation for the Christian refers to the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of a person in such a way that it becomes more like the inner being of Christ himself. So herein lies that main idea. All who follow Jesus should be yearning for a spiritual transformation of the heart, its desires, and conforming it to Christ-likeness. And this, this transformation is available to us here and now. The transformation of the spirit is one that we look to Jesus for. We can't do it by ourselves because imperfect humans, we cannot provide a solution for ourselves. We've never traveled that path. But Jesus, who has achieved such perfection and alignment with God's spirit, he can provide us the way because he's walked that path. He has shown us the way. He is showing us the way. And uh, to, to be able to connect with what we know and what we read in scripture, connect that to our heart. There's a Native American saying, the longest journey you will make in your life is from your head to your heart. Connecting what you know in your head with the belief in your heart and then that producing the outward actions that, that believe, that, that act like the belief is true in what you do is a lifelong process. It's not overnight. It takes a whole life, years and years and years. So that's a, that's a major challenge for us. It's not readily apparent, and it's not easy, it's not obvious what the path is for true transformation. You can't go read a book and say, here's a prescription for you, and here's a prescription for you, and here's, that doesn't exist. Our heads are full, we think one thing, we do another. It takes hard work, it takes a constant dying to self, it takes retraining that's only completed with the faith in the work of the Spirit. It's the connecting of taking Jesus at his word and acting on it, believing that it's true. It's the challenge of being good, not just doing good. In fact, the outer life of a Christian is a direct indication of the successful spiritual transformation. Uh, Jesus said, a tree is known by the fruit it bears, right? So the internal, we know what's on the inside based on what comes out, but yet, paradoxically, 
if you, if you focus on the external, manifestation, the external manifestation of Christ-likeness, you will certainly fail. Because if you're only focusing on what happens on the outside, you're going to miss what happens on the inside in your internal transformation. So I want to reemphasize, and this is something that I've, I've been telling myself, I, you know, my, my kids know this too, it is not about how to act. The primary problem in life is not usually what we do. It is the heart that the actions come from. And even in this situation, when God said to Samuel about David, man looks at the external experiences while God looks at the heart. This is especially true here. Okay, so real life example. Everybody knows 1 Corinthians 13.4. Love is patient, love is kind. All the rest, right? Once upon a time, I thought I was a very patient, very patient person. I told Maggie before, I, I thought I was very patient. Not much bothered me. I, I, I thought I was very tolerant. I thought I was even tempered. Nothing would really get me riled up. And then I realized that God had a lot to teach me about the extents of love and what that has to do with anger and how far I, off, I was off his ideal. So everybody knows, and those of you that who are married, you know, you get married, you all of a sudden discover that you're not so perfect, right? And then, you have, and then if you end up having kids, too, you discover how much of your imperfection actually rubs off on your, your kids. And you can see it reflected to you very clearly. Okay, so after I had kids, I was greatly humbled to find out that I was not as patient as I thought I was. I, I got mad, I pounded tables, I yelled, I got frustrated at them. You know, but th these are things that God has worked with me on. These are things that I have actually, I think I have transformed in certain areas over my years. You know, my, you can ask my kids later. I have no problem with them sharing with, with, uh, with you all about, you know, the, the, the things that I did and how I've changed. I had mistakenly recognized that my acting patient and kind to be loving. I had missed the point. Being loving was the primary being loving was the primary thing, but acting and acting patient and kind came from the love. As soon as I had, and because of because I had it backwards, as soon as I had external pressure, external challenges, frustrations, I was tired, whatever, my outward appearance crumbled because my heart on the inside had no support, there's no foundation, it was hollow. So as, as soon as external pressure came in, the inside collapsed, and I was disappointed at myself at another failure. So the transformation I began to seek out during that time was to discover one that was a constant emptying of myself and looking to the constant grace of God to fill the gaps, knowing and admitting that I'm not able to transform myself without assistance. I can't do it myself. So this is a foundational concept. This idea of dying to self, taking on Christ's life, not worrying about what happens to yourself. Matthew, Jesus talks about it in many places in the gospel. Matthew 10, 39. Those who found their life shall lose it, while those who lose their life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 16, 25. Whoever aims to save their life shall lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake shall find it. For what have you gained by possessing the entire world in the process if you for forfeit your life? And again, he talks about this in Mark 8. Again, he talks about this in Luke 9. So Jesus repeatedly talks about losing your life for his sake. It must be important. He did it himself. He lost his life for our sake. So we, we need to pay attention to this. This is a very key, core teaching of Jesus. I really like uh, 
uh, I really like Pastor Calvin's uh, uh, saying. He said it a couple times in a couple past sermons. He said, dead men don't flinch. If we are dead to ourselves, if ourselves are dead, we don't flinch when we're prodded and poked and things like that. I, I like that. Conditions, that's a condition where if I don't get what I want, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't even offend me. It has no control over me. Dead to self might mean that I notice, I might not even notice things that others would. Uh, social slights, verbal put-downs, insults, physical discomforts, they don't surprise, they don't bother. They're part of this life. However, Jesus followers, we don't, we don't just become expressionless. We don't become unfeeling or numb. We actually might be deeply disturbed about many things. We might even passionately want a lot of things. But we shouldn't be bothered by the fulfillment or not fulfillment of those, of those desires and those things. Getting our way doesn't have a significance and does not disturb us. And then the, ch the further challenge is then doing this joyfully because you have the confidence of God's love, his greatness and goodness, and the experience of his care, which frees us up from having to look out for ourselves. You no longer have to manage the weather. You don't have to manage the airplanes and other people and other expectations. If you've already put God in charge, if you've said that God's in charge, none of those things, he's in charge. You're not the boss anymore. Not needing to have your way, not needing to have your control, removes the root and source of a lot of the evil that we have to deal with in our world and within ourselves. But some sensitivity will remain. I mean, we are, we are human, we live in this world, we are physical beings, we do feel, but they're no longer the overpowering internal force. Sure, it still feels good to get compliments. It still hurts to get put down or insulted, but for the transformed heart to Christ, who took compliments only from his Father in heaven and bore all insults in silence, it's a shadow. It's a flash in the pan. It passes and it's gone. It has no effect. So I ask you, have you been stopping short of this life that God has called you to? Perhaps you've tried. Maybe you fell short. Have you settled for less than what God offered you in his kingdom? Do you feel that you're constantly fighting the same battles, wrestling with the same habits, only fighting over the same ground? So how do we change? Without God and without what's spelled out in Scripture, it's impossible, without the Spirit. But changing our behavior without inner transformation is precisely why we have so much shallowness that we so widely see in, our, in the Christian community, in those that we know that are called Christians, even are, is, is the cause for much, uh, many prominent Christian leaders to fall. You know, these questions of, were, were they ever even, you know, were they ever transformed? Were they ever believers? Those kinds of questions come out because the inner transformation that we can see didn't happen. We may even feel like the sort of radical spiritual transformation that Jesus desires for us is not even attainable in this life. We've just given up. But it's not correct to think that. We, can't, we can change. So back to our Bible scripture, uh, our scripture passage for today, 2 Corinthians 13, 18 in particular. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Those words, being transformed, in the text it, it says present tense. We are being transformed. 
Jesus himself said that repent, the kingdom is near. What, is, what, what does near mean? It literally meant that Jesus was right there. The kingdom was near. He was right there, accessible to people. It is here and now, not near as in coming in a few years. It was there, right there, physically close to them. Jesus initiated this process with his incarnation, death, and resurrection. He has already disrupted our human condition and has acted, and his sovereign plan will bring the glory of God. So once we are transformed, but true, there's always going to be a part of us as we exist in our imperfect states that will be at risk, that can always be fanned into flame, that can always be drawn towards sin. So we should all stay humble in this process. But claiming that our built-in fallenness is, a, is our reason for being unable to be transformed, that's an excuse. That's an excuse to take us off the hook and working on this inner transformation. There is a model to follow for the spiritual transformation. It's a pattern that we can see in Jesus' teachings and the way that he interacted with his disciples. So three areas, I use the characters V-I-M or VIM. First is a vision of life in the kingdom. That is, what do, you, do you know what God offers you as, being, as, as he brings his kingdom? What does that look like? With that follows an intent to be a kingdom citizen, leading to a decision to carry through on his teachings. And once you have those put together, the means by which you actually can have that spiritual transformation, done through personal introspection, training, study, meditation, prayer, assisted by the Spirit. God is involved, and he makes his help available to those who seek it. All right, so let's talk about each one of these at length here. So vision. Jesus presented his vision to his disciples. He proclaimed access to the kingdom of God and what that looks like. Again, what he said, repent for the kingdom of God is near. His presence, his actions and teachings as manifested in the flesh gave the disciples a clear vision of what this was all for and what it was worth. It was worth everything they had. Jesus called them, they followed. They followed him around. They saw healing, they saw preaching, they saw teaching, they saw people being restored. They saw people living not dead. They saw, you know, lepers get up and uh, be healed. They saw paralyzed get up and walk. That was the kingdom traveling around with Jesus, and they were eyewitnesses to that. They were seeing the world being made whole again. Okay, so Jesus told stories about this, right? Parable of the treasure buried in the field. Everybody knows a story. You discover a treasure buried in the field, so you gather all your money and resources and sacrifice it all to get that property and the treasure. That, that property with the treasure in it so you can, get, you can dig up the treasure and it belongs to you, right? I, I love, I made a new re realization, I think, because this, this story was sold old hat for me. I've heard it since I was very little when I, you know, in Sunday school. Let's make it modern, though. You, you discover for some reason that the Mega Millions $1.337 billion winning ticket is buried in an empty lot here in Chicago for some reason. I'm bypass the whole logic part of that, okay? What would you do to go get that field? Not many of us can just stand up and can't fork over half a million dollars to buy a, a, you know, a Chicago empty lot. Okay, a lot of us would have to sell everything we have and go buy that field so you can get the ticket. 
Do you really feel put out or sad that you had to sell all of your stuff to get that ticket? I wouldn't feel sad. I would be excited to do it because I know that the payoff is very great. I know what that field is worth with that treasure in it, right? Would you really do all that if you didn't think that the treasure was worth it? So if the excitement of this treasure, this billion dollar ticket, caused you all to sell your possessions and without a second thought, how much more should we be excited about God's kingdom and what treasure lies there? So that, that's what it's like to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Jesus had this vision. He knew what he had to pay. He had to pay with his life. He had to suffer. But he was able to see beyond that because he attached himself to God's vision. He knew what God wanted. And he, knew, and he, he, was, he, he was trusted in it and believed in it as true and acted accordingly. And he knew the payment and he knew the payoff. The payoff was infinitely greater. So, I ask you, do you have a vision of what God offers us? Do you see yourself carrying this vision and this kingdom with you, bringing it near to those around wherever you go? Do you see the value in what God, brings, God gives us? If you cannot answer that well for yourself, this is the first and foremost important place to start. Find that vision of God's kingdom that excites you, that draws you in, drives you to deny yourself to get what Jesus offers. Pray for it. Ask God for it. Read about it in God's word. Refresh yourself in what Jesus taught. All right. So you have the vision. Following that is then the intent. If we believe Jesus' teaching and his vision, there needs to be an actual decision to carry through and do what he teaches. You can't believe him and what he says without deciding to also trust him by intending to obey if you, just, if you do that, that's just lip service. You're just saying it. You know? So that's, that thing, those are things like just answering correctly about Scripture or knowing the right answer uh, in Sunday school or you know, in, in Bible class or whatever. It does not mean you actually believe them. Believing them, like anything else you believe to be true, means that you will act as if they were true. You don't go to the doctor. You don't believe what they say about your health and how to fix your health or how to keep your health. And then leaves the office, and then you just say, nah, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. Right? If you don't intend to follow their advice, you simply don't trust them. And then in the doctor's case, it might just be because you want to trust yourself that you know better than the doctor does. Or maybe you need a second opinion about this. It's possible. In this world, doctors are human too. It's okay. You know, second opinions are not bad. That works for earthly things. But in spiritual matters, as it comes to following Jesus, Jesus is the one way, the one truth, and the one life. There is no second opinion. You either follow and trust and believe in what he says, or you don't. Or you believe in what you think you want. So Jesus showed this in so many ways in front of his disciples. He served, he taught, while loving the multitudes who sought him out and wanted to hear from him. This all culminated in his obedience to God, even to death on a cross, because Jesus had the vision of what God saw. He is his, then he, his intent led to a decision to trust God and act, is, act as if the vision were true and trustworthy, which, of course, it is and it was. This is the example we follow. As we trust in what Jesus teaches, we, too, have to have an intention and make a decision to do what he teaches. And here is where the work begins. 
the means by which we can actually transform. We have vision, we have an intent that leads to decision, and that decision actually leads to an action. This will naturally happen as, as you start looking for ways to apply actions to get to your goal. So here's where you start discovering those means for spiritual transformation. How do we replace the corrupt, non-Christ-likeness characteristics of our internal character, our internal spirit and heart, with those of Jesus? It's almost like a transplant, like take the bad stuff out, replace it with good. Paul uses this illustration all the time, running the race, training his body. He says that all the time. He doesn't want to waste his energy. Turning, and what he's doing and what he talks about there is he's turning himself into the kind of person who would obey when presented with a challenging situation. You aren't that person now, but we need to turn ourselves into a person that would. So think of your, I mean, if you like sports or something that, you know, something physical, like if so if you follow baseball or basketball or whatever sport you follow, think of, it, think of that for a moment. Professional sports players, they exercise, they lift weights, they have a diet regimen, all more, and that's not even part of the practice, the practicing of the actual sport that they play, okay? No, no sport that I know of does a bicep curl on, on the game field as part of their normal actions, maybe arm wrestling, I don't know. Okay? No one does a push-up. That's not part of the sport. But no one argues that they do that as part of exercise. They are training their bodies so that when it's game time, they can do the movements necessary with the required amount of strength and flexibility. Okay? After then, after all the working out, after all the dieting regimens and all this other stuff that they do, then they actually practice the sport. They practice the movements of the sport. They practice pitching. They practice hitting. They practice passing. They practice whatever, shooting over and over again to make sure that when it's game time, they can actually do the thing. They actually make the shot, swing the racket, whatever, with the right technique. No sports player goes onto a court and without being properly prepared. And then even after they're done with the game, they sit in analysis. They watch their own tapes, watching recordings, looking over statistics, looking against the people that they battled against. They, that they were competing against, success and failure rates of both sides and everything. And that feeds into their training and practice. Sounds complicated, I know. But this is the kind of thing that Paul is kind of trying to illustrate. He's training his body, we're training our spirit. So we too must also be training and prepared. Those areas of exercise that are brought up through introspection, experience, prayer, and reflection, that's, those are the areas that we start. Where have we last failed? Where have we last had trouble? Think about it and sit down. What drove those, what intentions, what heart drove that? And start to work on that. Identify those thoughts, feelings, and habits, and relationships, fleshly inclinations that prevent us from doing whatever that it is that Jesus is conforming us to. So as an example, if you're struggling with selfishness, I'll just pick a generic one, okay? Uh, identify what it is that prevents you from being generous. Um, maybe you've been shaped in your history in such a way that uncertainty in the future brings about a, 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 an amount of fear. Maybe you feel by giving to a stranger or something like that, you are allowing the recipient to be lazy. Maybe the person isn't even a friend. Maybe they're an enemy or an adversary or somebody, somebody that you, know, you don't like very much, but they have some need, some, need, some simple need that you can solve, but you're not willing to give it to them, whatever it is that becomes the target of your practice. 
Practice giving in generosity. Find ways to practice having faith, knowing that God values more than the sparrows in the air and the flowers in the field. Practice sacrificial giving. Practice being generous in other ways to serve people, to learn about their needs and their struggles. Get to know the stranger. Get to know, these, get to know people. And in that way, you will be training your spirit because without training and exercise, the chances are extremely low that you will do the Christ-like thing on the spot. I want to reemphasize here. You can't expect yourself without training to do the right thing according to Jesus. On the spot, under pressure. This is where, this is where that exercise and training comes in. Every person is different. Every training regimen custom to the way that you have, shaped your, that you have been shaped in your life. And this is where, I'll just sell it again, you know, joining discipleship groups and small groups, being able to walk with other Christians who can point these kinds of things out to you, help you, understand why that you fail and it's okay. That's why these things are important to be involved in, not just on Sunday. But the end goal, the end goal, the end kind of thing that you look for, the end thing that we can expect is that obedience to Christ comes naturally. It comes as a reflex without much thought or effort. When challenged, you will do the right thing on the spot because you've been more conformed to Jesus' spirit. You know, how to, you, know how, you know the movements. You know the internal thoughts. You know the path of how to get that done. That, that path has been trodden down and flattened and easy. What used to be triggers for anger, for me anyway, are now triggers for compassion and kindness. What used to be triggers for, I need to get what I want, becomes seeing others than others as more important than myself. And out of those changes in your heart flow those springs of life. So, rolling back, this all starts at vision. You don't have a vision, you don't have that vision of God's kingdom, you, you, you gotta start there. Our vision of what God offers us in his vision for our life and his kingdom is at the root of our motivation. Often people fail, we fail here because we don't have a clear vision of, God's, of, of life in God's kingdom. We believe that we need to be in control. We believe that we need to hold on to what we have because somehow we don't believe that God's kingdom is more valuable than what we're holding on to. Many have not been given a vision of God's kingdom which, where such a decision and intention would be obvious. Again, the, the treasure in the field thing. If you don't think the treasure is valuable, why would you ever take action to go after the field? Jesus calls us to a transformed life, but not, in the, not just in the future. He calls, it, calls us to it in the here and now because his kingdom is near. His spirit lives within us. We are in his kingdom. We are part of his kingdom. We are ministers within his kingdom. He has called each one of us to follow him to be a kingdom of priests. So we should not sell ourselves short here and rob ourselves of this rich spiritual life that he offers to us. It's not an easy or clear path. We're all in different stages of our own spiritual formation. We lament, just like Paul lamented, that our bodies don't do what we wanted to do. We want to do one thing, it does another. And sometimes it does feel like we're just fighting the same ground over and over again. But that's, that's the process. By our spirit being in the process of being transformed is often, almost always, at odds with our fleshly desires. So we have to work hard at this. 
we have to die, daily die to ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, following that vision of God's kingdom. We need God's grace constantly for every failure and shortcoming. But whether you're striving on, struggling, stuck, or even feel like you might be falling backwards at times, I urge you to fix your eyes on Jesus, God's vision, his kingdom. Find inspiration in that kingdom vision that he has for you and the kingdom life that is accessible to you right now. So that's what I had to share today. Uh, it's been something that I've been, been working on in myself for a long time and will continue to do so. And I hope that you all also will, will join me and, and, and others, you know, other Christians around the world who are going through the same process. We are all being transformed. Um, if anybody is interested in this particular book, Renovation of the Heart, I highly recommend it. Come talk to me if you, want me to, uh, if you need more details about it. I will buy a copy for anybody who wants it. And if you can't get it for some reason, it's that good. I think it's that important. So uh, join me in prayer as we as close out my time today. God in heaven, we thank you so much for the spirit that you have provided, for the vision of the kingdom that you have given us, the example that you set in your son. Lord, help us to encourage us to not despair in our sinful selves. But God, that you are a loving God, gentle and lowly are you in heart, and you welcome all sinners, no matter where we are, to repent and turn towards you, to give up ourselves and take on your life, your cross, and your yoke. Encourage each one of us here today and those that are listening out of your We thank you for this time and this time that we are able to worship you and hear your word. Grow deep in our hearts, God. In your son's name we pray, amen.